Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. We are going to cover 26 and 27 tonight. Chapter 27 is a short uh, chapter and it goes uh, hand in hand with uh, chapter 26. And if you remember when we started back in chapter 24, Isaiah says three things that will comfort God's chosen people in that terrible day of judgment. In chapter 24, he said the Lord will judge his enemies. In chapter 25, he said the Lord will preserve his people. Here in chapter 26 and 27, he says the Lord will restore the nation. In verse 1 of Isaiah, chapter um, 26 here, it says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And then in verses 2 through 6, we read what that song will be. Now, they're not singing this song today. They're not singing this song yet. And it's obvious that their return to Israel today is not a fulfillment of the prophecy here in verse 1. Israel is singing once more here at this, in this particular chapter. And this time, the emphasis is on righteousness and peace. Now, there can't be any real peace without righteousness. Isaiah said in chapter 32, verse 17, this righteousness will bring peace. Yes, it will bring quietness and confidence forever. And there can't be no righteousness without God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Isaiah said in chapter 48, 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And it's at the cross of Christ that righteousness and peace have kissed said the psalmist in Psalm 85.10. When Jesus Christ reigns on earth, Psalm 72.7 will be fulfilled. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace. Jesus Christ is our true king of righteousness. And he's the king of peace, the prince of peace. The phrase in that day, here in verse 1, it refers to the day of the Lord. It's not the first time we've heard this. The day of judgment that ends when Jesus returns to the earth. And the blessings that will follow when Jesus finally defeats his enemies. Now in chapter 26 and 27 here, Isaiah encourages God's suffering people by describing seven pictures of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them still in the future. People will praise God, it says, on the day of the Lord when Jesus sets up his kingdom. Chapter 26 is a psalm of trust, praise, and meditation. And here God shows the future to Isaiah once again. So the first picture of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future is the strong city. Notice verses 1 through 6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And here's the song. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. For he brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it, to, he lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor. And the steps of the needy. Samaria fell to the Assyrians. 
Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. But the new Jerusalem, it is going to be indestructible. During the day of the Lord, God will destroy all of the proud cities of the earth. But Mount Zion, it will be exalted to the glory of the Lord. Jerusalem won't be described anymore as the sinful city that's described in chapter 1 of Isaiah. It will be a righteous city for a holy nation whose sins have been washed away. In Zechariah 13, 1, Zechariah said, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it's only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ that will enter into this city. And because they believe in Christ, they have peace. Paul said in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it means more than just the end of war. The word shalom also includes blessings like health, peace of soul, preservation and completeness. What is your peace tonight? Who is your peace tonight? And and what is your peace is the way that the Jews often greet each other. And Isaiah's answer would be, my peace is from the Lord because I trust totally in him. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, Paul said this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if if there is anything praiseworthy, notice, meditate on these things. The things that you ha- which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, Philippians 4, 6 through 9, this is based on Isaiah 26, 3 here. Where Isaiah says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The Bible speaks of the peace of Christ which passes human understanding. Now, it's one thing to have peace with God. All right? You can have peace with God. That happens the moment you give your life to God. And that makes sense. You have peace with God because now, as, because as long as you're fighting God and you're resisting Him and you're running from Him... As we saw last week when God spoke, Jesus spoke to, to Paul, you know, when you're kicking against the goads, that is running away and resisting him, you can't have peace with God. The first time that a person is aware that they have peace is when they receive Jesus Christ into their life. When they repent of their sins. When they say, Lord, I am sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. Come into my life and take over my life. And when they do... The first thing they feel is a sense of peace. And all of a sudden, there's a calmness in their heart. There's a stillness in their life. There's an incredible sense that everything's going to be okay. And the war with God is over. I'm not fighting God anymore. 
I'm not resisting him anymore. We're on the same side now. And I can quit running away from God. And now I know that I'm a child of God. And man, that feels so good. And it's hard to explain just how you feel. But again, it's one thing to have peace with God, but there's also the peace of God. There are a lot of people who have, who have peace with God, but they don't have the peace of God. Their life is still in chaos. They still have a lot of anxiety. They still have a lot of fear. They're worried about the things around them. They're insecure. It's possible to be born again, children of God, and not have the peace of God. The peace of God comes when you put your life totally in his hands. When you let go of things and you say, Lord, I'm putting it all in your hands. And when you look at him, when you look at him instead of looking at your circumstances, you quit looking at the problems and you look at the Lord. Because it makes a big difference when I look at my problems in the light of my strength. My strength is very limited and it's very weak. Jesus said the flesh is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even the smallest thing can overwhelm me if I think that I have to take care of it. But when I look at my problems in the light of his strength, God's strength, that's unlimited and it's all powerful, there's nothing that he can't do. And when we come to that place of, Lord, you take care of it. Because I know there is nothing that I'm facing that you can't handle. And that if I keep my eyes on you, then I will have that perfect peace. And we need to keep our minds from getting all caught up in these things. And, and I find myself, when my mind starts getting caught up in, in the things around me, and, and I do. I have to recognize, Lord, forgive me. And I have to pray, and I have to give it to the Lord. And I have to do that often. And then I will have that sense of peace. He will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on him. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to him. The word commit means to roll it over onto the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. But if you're going to keep your mind on those problems, you're not going to get much sleep at night. And you're going to have all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of things going on. In verse 4 here, it says, trust in the Lord forever for in Yah. That is the Lord is, every, is everlasting strength. Yah is a, is a, a contraction of, of Yahweh, Yehovah. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, a rock who endures forever. And those who are singing this song here in, ver, in verses 2 through 6, they have a good reason. Why men put their confidence in the Lord? Because again, it's in Yah or Yahweh. The covenant God of Israel who is a rock that endures forever. All the storms and all the changes of time cannot change him. Because he stands firm and he's eternal. He's immutable. That is, he's unchanging. So the mind that rests on God can't be moved. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And in speaking of God as a rock, Isaiah is thinking mostly of the fact that he is solid. He's solid. He's a sure foundation. A foundation that man can rest his mind on. And as a rock, God is also a hiding place. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And at the end of that verse is the word Selah. You've probably seen it many times when you read the Psalms. Selah. John Philip says the word Selah means what do you think of that? I like that. I've heard it say it means to pause, to take a break, to think about it, to meditate upon what you just read. But John Philip says it can say what do you think of that? So in reading it, you're my hiding place, God. You will preserve me, Lord, from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. What do you think about that? And I think that's awesome. The psalmist said in Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What a wonderful hope. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful promise we have. Then in verses 7 through 11, we have the second picture of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future. The level path. Let's read verses 7 through 11. The way of the just is uprightness. Almost upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments. O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have trusted you in the night. Yes, my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. So again, the the second picture here of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future is the level path. In verse 7, where it says to weigh the path, this means to make it smooth or level. Now, sometimes the path of the just... It doesn't seem to be, very, to be very smooth sometimes, does it? And it's not easy sometimes to do God's will. But we're never alone when we go through tough times. And the key word is through. God doesn't avoid taking us through tough times. I, I, I have not read that he takes us around tough times. Or he takes us under tough times. He doesn't avoid those tough times he takes us through those tough times because it's when we go through them that we learn from them so you know don't don't try to avoid god's path stay on it because it's the best path in isaiah chapter 11 verse 16 isaiah mentioned the image of the highway Israel and Judah had been divided for centuries but that will come to an end and even the gentiles will walk on the highway The highway of holiness that leads to Jerusalem. And the highway, that that term is one of Isaiah's favorite illustrations. And those who obey the Lord have a level and smooth road to walk. Isaiah 26 verses 7 and 8 here. When God calls his people back to their land, he's going to prepare the way for them. And he's going to lead them there safely. 
He's going to remove all the obstacles so that the people can travel easily. And God's highway will be called, as it says in chapter 35, verse 8 of, of Isaiah, the highway of holiness. When Isaiah looked at the people, his people, he saw a sinful nation that would one day walk on the highway of holiness. And they would walk right into a righteous kingdom. He saw a suffering people who would one day enjoy a beautiful and peaceful kingdom. He saw a scattered people who would one day be gathered again and they'd be reunited under the leadership, the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come. Because you see, it's only when his kingdom comes that there can be peace, real peace on earth. Now, during a lot of the Jews' histories, the Jews have traveled a rough road. You know, if you know anything about their past history. But when God's kingdom is set up, God's going to give them level paths and a smooth way. Because they will be walking in the will of God. It's hard when you're not walking in the will of God. It is a bumpy road. It is full of pitfalls and dangers. But because they will be walking in the will of God, their way will be safe and it will be enjoyable. And they'll wait on the Lord to know his will. Because they were going to want to know the Lord. They're going to want the Lord. They're going to desire him. And they're going to worship him even in the night. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.55, he said, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. And you know what? It's, it's, I think it's hardest at night to remember his name, to remember his word. You know, when, when we're going through tough times, and, and, I, and I remember way back in the beginning of my marriage and, and, and we were separated, the nighttime was the hardest time for me. Because everything was quiet. I was alone. And, 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 I, and it, it, again, we're encouraged to remember God's songs. And that those, God, those songs that God teaches us in the daytime, we need to sing them at night as well. When we're going through the difficult times. And the psalmist said, I remember your name in the night, O Lord. And according to verses 9, and, 9 through 11 here, God wants the world to learn righteousness. And so he sends his judgments, but the people still won't repent. And we see that during the great tribulation in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. Listen to what it says. But the rest of mankind knows who were not killed by these plagues, God's outpouring of wrath during the great tribulation. Those who weren't killed by these plagues, notice, did not repent of their work, the works of their hands. They still didn't repent. They didn't repent that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I mean, they're seeing what's going on during the Great Tribulation period. And yet they still don't repent. God shows them his grace in so many ways. And he shows us his grace so many times. But they continue to do evil and people will continue to do evil. His hand is at work. He's showing them his grace. Isaiah prays here that God will show himself through his people as he works on their behalf. 
and the reviving and the restoring of Israel should help prove to a lost world that God is not dead and that he keeps his promises. And then in verses 7 through 18, we see the third picture of God's blessings in the future uh, blessings that are waiting for them. And the third picture is the woman in travail. Look at verses 12 through 18. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all your work in us. O Lord, our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us. But by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased and they will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chasing was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery. So so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. The agony of the days of the Lord here is compared to the pain of a woman in labor. And Isaiah describes here the remnant telling their failures to the Lord. And because of their sins, they were under the rule of many Gentile dictators, many Gentile tyrants, oppressors. But now these these, these tyrants were dead and they could return to they could return to bring them under they couldn't return to bring them under their control again god disciplined his people and he brought them to the place where all they could do was whisper their prayers in a time of sudden distress according to verse 16 but god heard them and god delivered them as he said in verse 18 like a pregnant woman cries out in pain as she gives birth so were you in your presence Lord, so were we in your presence, Lord. We too were in agony, but nothing comes of our suffering. We've not given salvation to the earth nor brought life into the world. But during the kingdom age, Israel and Mount Zion will be the source of blessing for the whole world. Now, what kept Israel from being the blessing to the world that God wanted them to be? Well, they turned from heartfelt worship of the true and living God and they gave their love and devotion to idols. They left the love of God. And they were, you know, like an unfaithful spouse. They gave their love and their devotion to another lover. The Hebrew word in verse 13 that's translated had dominion, the word is Baal. Baal. It's the name of the Canaanite storm god whose religion created so many problems in Israel. But the word Baal also means husband. And it suggests that Israel wasn't true to her husband, Jehovah. But in her unfaithfulness, she turned to another god. And then in verses 19 through 21, we see the fourth picture of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future. The life-giving due. Let's read verses 19 through 21. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. 
For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Again, we have the fourth picture here of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future. The life-giving dew. Just like dew would bring new life to the ground, to the soil, and to the plant life. God is going to raise the dead out of the earth, verse 19 tells us. Isaiah had already talked about God's victory over death in chapter 25, verses 7 and 8. But now, and now he tells us how how God's going to do that. He's going to raise their bodies from the dust, verse 19 tells us. Now, understand, resurrection is not reconstruction. Resurrection is not taking this old body that goes into the grave and God takes it and kind of puts it back together wherever it needs to be put back together. It's not patching it up. It's not improving the old body. And then sticking a new and improved sticker on it and and giving it life. Paul compared the miracle of resurrection to the harvesting of grain that's planted in the soil in 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49. That seed that goes into the ground. And it dies. It doesn't come back as a seed. It it sprouts new life. It's It's a new creation in a way. Jesus said the same thing in John 12, 24. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You know, and, it, and, and if you, you like to garden and, and you, you, you buy bulbs, the bulbs are not very pretty. They're, they're not, they're, they're ugly. And then you, you dig the hole you bury them, you water them, then pretty soon it starts to sprout. And out from comes this ugly bulb that you planted in the ground is maybe a beautiful rose, a beautiful flower, a beautiful plant of some kind. And that's what the resurrection is. These ugly bulbs are going to go down into the grave and they're going to, they're going to sprout in the resurrection and it's going to become a beautiful, new, glorified body. That Jesus Christ raises. The seed is buried. It dies. But out of this death comes life. And out of it comes fruitfulness. Isaiah in verses 17 through 18 here. He he had just written about the labor pangs. And so he compares the resurrection to human birth. In verse 19 he says. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up. And when Jesus Christ comes back for his church, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul says, those believers who are asleep, that is, those who are asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, they're going to be raised up, raised from the dead. And when Jesus comes back with his church to judge his enemies and set up his kingdom, there will also be a resurrection. Revelation 19, 11 through 11 through chapter 20, verse 6. Now, These two events, 
These two events of the resurrection are called the first resurrection and the second resurrection. You want to be in the first resurrection. All right? The first resurrection is of those who are saved only. And it takes place at Christ's return when he comes for his church. And then at the end of the thousand year period, the millennial kingdom, the millennium, when Satan has been bound in the bottomless pit or is bound, never coming out again, the lost are going to be raised as well. But this is, they're, they're going to be raised to face the great, great white throne judgment. You don't want to be at that one. That is the second death. You don't want to be there. That's when all, all those that, that, that died out of Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. And even though the Old Testament doesn't completely explain about death and resurrection, it does promise us that there is a future for this old body. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. In Psalm 16, 9 through 10, the psalmist says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will rest in hope. So the remnant of Jews, the remnant of Jews has been praying to God in verses 11 through 19 and now God speaks to them. He gives them the assurance that they need in verses 20 through 21 here and he promises them. He promises to shelter his people from the terrible attacks of the enemy. We see that in Revelation chapter 12. God will punish his enemies who have killed his people. His people whose blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. Like Abel's blood cried out from the the ground. God is going to punish those who have killed his people. The unjust shedding of blood pollutes the land, Numbers tells us. And it brings God's judgment. Chapter 27. In verse 1, we see the fifth picture of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future. And that is the conquered beast. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 27. In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. The conquered beast here, the fifth picture of the kingdom blessings, waiting for them in the future. The nations around Israel had many legends about sea monsters. One of them was compared to Leviathan, probably a crocodile, according to Job 3.8 and Job 41.1. Now, to kill this creature was a great accomplishment, and the Lord promised to do it. Satan held these nations in bondage through their superstitious religions. But the remnant, God's people, they didn't need to fear the false gods of the Gentiles. God's people today, we are set free from bondage to Satan. We have been set free from the false gods that Satan uses to seduce his people. Who he seduces them, the, 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 the people to worship him. And we can rejoice in our Lord's great victory because now it says in John 12, 31, the ruler of the world will be cast out. Satan will be cast out. 
And when the battle is over and the Lord has defeated evil once and for all, Israel can enter her glorious kingdom, her wonderful kingdom without any worry or any fear. And then in verses 2 through 11, we have the sixth picture of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future. And that is the fruitful vineyard. Let's read verses 2 through 11. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones, or he crushes them to dust that are beaten to dust. Wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore he who made them will not have mercy on them. And he who formed them will show them no favor. In verses, in chapter 5, if you remember back in chapter 5 verses 1 through 7, the vineyard is Israel. But here Isaiah sees the Israel of his day and the Israel of the future day when the kingdom of Israel will be established, when Christ's kingdom will be established. Now God wasn't angry with his people. Notice in verse 4 here in chapter 27 it says, fury is not in me. God wasn't angry with his people. God just wanted so badly for his people to return to him. He wanted them to trust in him with all of their heart. And that's what he wants for us. He wants for us to trust in him with all of our heart. He wants us to turn to him. God used war with Assyria to punish the northern kingdom. And then he used captivity in Babylon to discipline the southern kingdom. But you know what? He didn't do this out of anger. He didn't do this to say, you know, I'll teach you or I'll show you, I'll, you know, I'll make you pay for, for, you know, being unfaithful to me. He did it in love. Verses 10 and 11 describe Jerusalem after the Babylonian siege. What God did was temporarily take away his mercy from them until all of his purposes were accomplished. In the day of the Lord. God will use suffering to shake up and to cleanse his people and to prepare them for their kingdom. It's Hebrews 12, I believe, that says that that we we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so God will use suffering to shake up and cleanse his people and prepare them for their kingdom. Now, verse 9 isn't saying that personal suffering can take away sin. Because it can't. 
Only the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all sin. And that is if we confess it. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can take away sin. But God uses suffering as a discipline. He uses suffering to bring us to submission. So that we will seek him. So that we will seek his holiness. And and God knows how to bring us into submission. And you know, many times when, when... we're suffering or we're going through something, whatever it might be. God allows us to go through those things so that we will seek him. And that's the design of, of, of suffering and trials and, and the difficulties that we go through. It's not meant to knock us down and, and lay us flat on our back. It's meant to bring us to our knees. To seek God. To seek him in his holiness. And the Babylonian captivity... That God used with the Jews. It cured the Jews of their idolatry once and for all. And in Isaiah's day, the vineyard was producing wild grapes. Remember he said, I planted you. I took care of you. I watered you. I did everything that I could to to bring forth delicious grapes. And what happened? The vine produced wild grapes. But in the future kingdom, Israel will be fruitful and it will flourish. God will guard his people and God is going to give them everything that they need to bring glory to his name. Verse Verse 6 says here, the nation will notice blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And through Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed just like God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Bible speaks of three vines. The people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 27 here. Uh, It speaks of of Christ and his church. Christ being the vine and the church being the branches. John chapter 15. And a godless Gentile society. The vine of the earth. Genesis 14, 18. I'm sorry, Revelation 14, 18. The vineyard of Israel is not bearing fruit today. The vine of the earth is filling the world with poisonous fruit. And God's people have to be faithful branches in the vine. The vine is Christ. And they have to produce fruit that glorifies God's name. And then in verses 12 through 13, we have the last, the seventh picture of the kingdom blessings that are waiting for them in the future. And that is the holy and happy feast. Let's read verses 12 through 13. And it shall come to pass in that day... That the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river, that is the river Nile, to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So, so it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. And they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. The word to thresh in verse 12 means to judge. So God's purpose in threshing or God's purpose in judging the earth, it's not vengeance. It's to purify. God doesn't want to bring vengeance against his people. He wants to purify them. He wants to correct us. He wants to bring us back to him. God doesn't punish us for our sin just to make us suffer. 
but to make those who are faithful better equipped for, for fruitful service. The camp of Israel was directed by the blowing of trumpets. In number 10, I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 10, uh, it gave instructions for the, for the blowing of the trumpets. And it, it, it gives, the, 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 it says, when the trumpet blasted so many times, you would do this. When the trumpet blasts so many times, you would do this, or you'd go there. It's just like the military. You know, they, 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 they use the trumpet, and for reveille, you'd get up, and they'd play, uh, well, I forgot what it was at night when everybody was, was done, you know, for the day. And, you know, and, and, you know they'd play taps at, at, a, at a funeral service for the, uh, the, the veterans that had, you know, died or, or, or killed in battle. But the trumpet was, you know, had significant meaning to it. And so did the, uh, the trumpet blowing in Numbers chapter 10. And the feast of trumpets took place on the first day of the seventh month and prepared Israel for the, day, the annual day of atonement. But the day of atonement prepared them for the feast of tabernacles. That feast was a picture of the joy of the future kingdom. Isaiah pictured a wonderful day when God would repeat the miracle of the Exodus, and would deliver his people from their bondage to the Gentile nations. The trumpet call, the trumpet would call them to Jerusalem, Matthew 24, 31, and it would announce God's victory over their enemies. And they would worship the Lord in the Holy Mount at Jerusalem, as it says here in verse 13. So in closing, the kingdom will never be like a never-ending, the kingdom is going to be like a never-ending feast and a holy day of worship as the people rejoice in the Lord. We, God's people right now, we're also waiting for a particular sound of the trumpet announcing the coming of the Lord for his church. And when that trumpet sounds, then we're going to go with him to heaven. And we are going to get ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then, at the end of the great tribulation period, we are going to return with him to the earth. And we're going to reign with him in the kingdom for a thousand years. Are we praying? Are we praying, Lord, your kingdom come? Are your ears in tune just waiting to hear that trumpet blow. And more importantly, are you ready for that day? Now, if we heard that trumpet blast, would we be, oh, here it is, and I'm ready. Or would, wait, Lord, could you, you know, maybe blow it tomorrow? I need to take care of some business before I'm ready to go. Because we don't know when that trumpet blast is going to come. So let's be ready. No delays. Because he said he's going to come like a thief in the night. Father, we thank you so much again for these wonderful promises in your word, Lord. These seven wonderful pictures, Lord, of the blessings that are to come to your people in the future days, God. And Lord, we... Lord, we're waiting. We're waiting for that sound, Lord, for that trumpet blast. And God, I pray that, Lord, that day would not catch any one of us by surprise. 
that Lord, we are, that we're praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. And so, Father, may you bless your people. May they call upon you. May they seek forgiveness of their sins, God. And God, may you save them from the days ahead, the terrible days ahead, God. And Father, we love you. We, we thank you so much, God, for our salvation. And God, we pray again that, Lord, we would just be sharing this wonderful word with our loved ones, God, with those that we open the doors to, Father, that we can share. And Lord, we just thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, quick announcement.